from Job 1, verse 1 to 22. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There was born to him seven sons and seven daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and was and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on this day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does God, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a edge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch, your hand, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him. Do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burnt up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid of the camels and took them and struck down the servants. With the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge or charge God with wrong. This is the word of God. All right, it'll be a great, great help if you can keep your Bibles open in front of you. We're starting back, back at church, and uh, as you 
have heard. It's not a soft and fluffy passage. Uh, We need the meat of God's word, and we need to be strengthened by God's word. So let me pray and ask God to help us to understand his word and to obey it. Father, we thank you once again for the great joy to be part of your people and your family. And Lord, you have, you have sent this COVID so that we can understand that afresh, that what we have is a taste of heaven. And Lord, we come to your word, and Lord, the things we read in this chapter are frightening, And uh, so we pray, Lord, that you will help us to understand your word and help us to understand the ways of your world, which will help us to serve you and worship you as we ought. So speak to us through your word, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. On the 14th of January 2003, Detective Constable Stephen Oak was stabbed and killed in Manchester. Why? He was an upright man. He was a faithful husband. He was a loving father. What's more, he was a committed Christian. He would preach at his church from time to time. His father, who was the former chairman of the Christian Police Association, said through his tears that he was praying for his son's murderer. The newspaper articles told of the quiet dignity of his widow, Leslie, showed happy pictures of the family, uh, the teenage son and the young daughters. Of course, we would have countless examples of that in South Africa. But the obvious question is, why was Stephen Oakes killed? Doesn't that make you angry? It does for me. So let's be honest. There would be plenty of other policemen who deserve to die more than Stephen Oakes. No doubt there'd be crooked policemen in the UK taking bribes, corrupt No doubt there were married policemen who were sleeping around. If one of them had been killed, it would have been sad, but at least there would have been some moral logic to it. But why Stephen Oakes? He wasn't sinless, but he was godly and upright, and his family was godly and upright. So you see, we need to be brutally honest, because that's the kind of world we live in. It's unfair, it's unjust, where God seems to allow good people to suffer and he seems to allow bad people to get away with murder. Listen to this poem. It's from an honest man, but an angry man. Why do the wicked have it so good? Live to a ripe old age and get rich. They get to see their children succeed, get to watch and enjoy their grandchildren. Their homes are peaceful and free from fear. They never experience God's disciplining rod. Their bulls breed with great vigor and their calves carve without fail. They send out their children to play and watch watch them frolic like spring lambs. They make music with fiddles and flutes, have good times singing and dancing. They have a long life on easy street and die painlessly in their sleep. 
Here's a paraphrase of Job in Job chapter 21. We'll get to that in the next couple of weeks. Job says, let's let's stop this pious make-believe that it goes well for good people and badly for bad people. It's simply not true. Just look around. By and large, people who don't believe in God live happier, longer lives and with less suffering than believers. Why? What kind of God runs a world like this? Many people ask armchair questions. What is the origin of sin? Why is there suffering? What about the problem of evil? Job doesn't ask armchair questions. Job asks wheelchair questions. Because Job is in ICU. He's almost paralyzed. He's been hugely wounded. His suffering is staggering. And what makes it worse is that God is directly behind it. So he's honest with God. You won't find more honesty than in the book of Job. It's profound. What kind of world do we live in, he asks. What kind of God are you? Why do you, why do you heal one person, but you don't heal another person? Why do you do that? What's the, what's the rationale? There's, there's the horror of human pain, and you seem silent, you seem remote, you seem indifferent. What kind of God are you? Can you actually be trusted? So if you've asked those questions, let me encourage you, you're in good company. Job is not an academic book, hardly. If you listen to it carefully, it will touch you, it will trouble you, and it will unsettle you at a very deep level. But let me give you some hope. Because the book of Job gives us some profound answers. They are surprising answers. They are unexpected answers. But they are ultimately very, very satisfying answers. But for that, you've got to stay the whole six weeks. There's no such thing as a free lunch. Let me give you a bit of background context so we understand what we have here in front of us. And it really will be a great help if you can read chapter 2 for next week. In fact, read both chapter 1 chapter 2 before you come next Sunday morning. We don't know who the author of the book of Job is. We don't know that at all. It could have been, I've sort of thought, is it possibly Job, just like Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes as a kind of a memoir at the end of his life, but we have no idea. We have no idea who the author is. We have no idea what the date is of the book of, uh, book of Job. Uh, Christopher Ash, and um, he's been such a huge, huge help to me, and to Royden. Christopher Ash argues that probably Job was written at the time or lived at the time of the patriarchs. That's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So that's around about 2000 BC. And the reason he says that is because in chapter 1, verse 5, you'll notice that Job offers sacrifices for his family. Now, Moses, who lived around about 1,500 B.C., you have Moses, you have the Exodus, you have Mount Sinai, you have the priesthood. After Moses, it was forbidden for individuals to offer sacrifices. Only the priesthood could do that. So Ash argues, it would seem rightly, that this is pre-Moses, when the patriarchs, like Noah, like Abraham, offered sacrifices. 
because after Moses it was forbidden. We don't know the nationality of Job. We're not sure if he was a Hebrew, was he an African. Uh, Verse 1, he comes from the land of Uz, which is probably the land of Eden, Edom, uh, which is modern-day Jordan, um, uh, southwest Jordan. Um, The book is divided. Let me give you a quick uh, snapshot. The book is divided into three unequal sections. So section one is chapter one and two, it's prose, it's narrative, it's historical narrative. Chapter three, or section three, sorry, section one is chapter one and two, section three is chapter 42, which is also prose and narrative, historical narrative. And there's no evidence in those uh, two, two and a half chapters that what we have here is fictional. No evidence of that at all. No evidence that it's myth. Uh, These are real historical events with real historical people. Just as Jesus in the New Testament is a real historical person, so Job in the Old Testament is a real historical person. So that's section one and section three. In the middle, you have this big section from chapter three up to the beginning of chapter 42, which are the speeches, the speeches of Job and his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar. And it's poetry. And it's so helpful that it's poetry because it's not just head-to-head, it's heart-to-heart because he's dealing with deep, deep issues. And poetry touches your feelings, your emotions, your will, the very heart of who you are. And uh, I'm dealing with section 1, chapter 1 and 2, and then Royden will be dealing with chapter 3 to 42. Isn't that well thought out? Um, Like the senior pastor who said to his younger colleague at the beginning of the year, he said, I tell you what we're going to do. I'm going to do Easter, Thanksgiving Sunday, Christmas. You are doing race, gender, abortion, and Job. Um, That's pretty much how we've worked this one out. And I am so happy in the providence of God that... uh, All right, let's have a look at chapter 1. I hope you have your Bibles open. You really do need them open in front of you. If chapter 1 was a play, it would have three acts. It'll be act 1, act 2, act 3. Act 1 is verse 1 to 5, Job and his family on earth. Then act 2 changes, the scene changes. It's now in heaven, and it's God and Satan. And then act 3 is verse 13 to 22, which I've called here, we have Job back on earth. So act one is on earth, act two is in heaven, act three is back on earth, and here we have Job and his wheelchair. So they're the three acts. So let's, let's dig in straight away. First of all, act one, Job and his family. Let me read again from verse one. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go out and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. 
Thus Job did continually. Job is the original great man. He's healthy, he's wealthy, he's wise. In Old Testament times, uh, wealth and children were an indication, it was seen as God's blessing. So Deuteronomy 28, you have, um, you have blessings for obedience and you have curses for disobedience. Psalm 1, uh, remember Psalm 1? Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. In all that he do, does, he prospers. That's Job. Notice verse 2 and 4. He has a large family, seven sons, three daughters. Imagine the dining room table. Ten children, Job's wife and him. Twelve places, perhaps if they each had a friend. There are twenty-four places. The candles, the the wine glasses, uh, an army of servants with a feast on silver trays. Verse 3, he's the greatest of all the people in the East. So he's known internationally. Everyone knows his name. It's a household name. And he is fabulously wealthy. Like fabulously wealthy. 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and many, many servants. Last night, just to get the latest prices, I googled the cost of a camel. Now, a very good camel will cost you 55,000 U.S. dollars. Think of that. He had 3,000. Now, the CAs here would have known a long time ago, you would know exactly it's somewhere between two and three billion rand, the camels. The oxen, he has 500 yoke of oxen. A yoke is normally two oxen. So he's actually got a thousand bulls. Our presidents, many years ago, bought a Brahmin bull for half a million rand. So work that out. The bulls here is at least half a billion rand. This man is fabulously wealthy. And it doesn't even mention the factories, the industries, the private jets, the bodyguards. He is the original Jeff Bezos. Although he didn't divorce his wife. He's the original Patrice Motsepe, Richard Branson. That is Job, fabulously wealthy. But he's not only a great man, he's a godly man. Notice verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. It didn't mean that he was sinless, but he was a man of integrity. He was straight. What you see is what you got. He feared God. It means he was humble. He submitted to his creator, to his God. He turned away from evil. He was transparent. He was, there's no malice, no agenda. Perhaps it means that he repented and believed every day. Chapter 1, verse 1 is very important for us to remember. You see, when we read the unbelievable horrors of his life in chapter 1 and 2, and they are unbelievable, they terrify, we tempted to think that Job is actually hiding something. He's not as blameless or squeaky clean as he appears. In fact, one of his friends, Bildad, in chapter 8, verse 20, says, God will not, God will not reject a blameless man, meaning... Job, you're obviously not blameless. There must be some moral reason why you're suffering. You're suffering because of some terrible hidden sin. But that is not how God thinks of Job. 
No, Job is a believer. Notice verse 5. He knows that the only way to enter God's presence is if a sacrifice has been made. He rose early every morning and offered burnt, burnt offerings. In the Old Testament, to enter the presence of God, you had to make a sacrifice, a cow, a sheep, a goat. In the New Testament, exactly the same. To enter the presence of God, there has to be a sacrifice, a lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No, God knows him as a believer. God says he is blameless. Notice God's reference. God gives a reference to Satan. Those of us who are employers, we often have to write references. Well, God writes a reference of Job. And notice what he says of Job, chapter 1, verse 8. And it comes up again in chapter 2, verse 3. But notice chapter 1, verse 8. Have you considered, the Lord said to Satan, he has his reference, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? So chapter 1, 1 to 5 is a very happy scene. It's a happy world. The good man is a great man. The praying man is a prosperous man. It's the world as, as the world ought to be. It's a world where righteous people prosper. It's where Disney is happy. It's a world where the prosperity gospel flourishes. But it's only chapter 1, verse 5. You see, the prosperity gospel never gets to chapter 1, verse 6, or chapter 1, verse 13, or chapter 2, verse 1. It's because the prosperity gospel is from the pit of hell and it smells of smoke. So there we have Job and his family. Act 1, Act 2, God and Satan. So there's a scene change on stage. The lights are down. Stage right action. Verse 1 to 5, the scene is set on earth. Verse 6 to 12, the scene shifts to heaven. Notice verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So you have that timeless introduction in chapter 1, verse 1. And then, chapter verse 6, there was a day, and what a day. The day that changes Job's life forever. And we suddenly told here that, uh, that there's more to this world than we can see and touch and smell. There's another realm, there's another place where God holds counsel in a heavenly court. And the decisions of the heavenly court will affect people on earth. Now, my dear friends, if you don't believe in the supernatural, you better leave and head for the hills because it gets quite scary. The idea here is that there's a heavenly cabinet meeting. See that, verse 6? The cabinet members have been summoned by the Lord, almost like, like Donald summoning his senior staff to an early morning meeting in the Oval Office. Though at this point in time, I think it's a bit late. The phrase, yeah, the sons of God, would refer to angels, angelic beings, spiritual beings. They are subservient to God, but they are spiritual powers. They are spiritual beings. They are superhuman. The word, notice there, verse 6b, surprise. It's a bit of a shock. And Satan also came among them. This is where, if it was a movie, the music would go into the minor key. 
You know how in movies, suddenly the music changes and you know there's trouble coming. Well, the music has changed. Verse 6. Bronman, you got that? Good. The word Satan is not a name, it's a title. So you could call him the Satan because he's the adversary, he's the opponent, he's the enemy, he's the devil. Whether he's a member of the cabinet or whether he's gatecrashing, we're not quite sure, but he's there. And he's also there in chapter 2. Now, I'm going to offend someone here, well, perhaps a number of you here this morning. Imagine our state president having a cabinet meeting in the Tain House in Cape Town, and uh, it's a full cabinet meeting. All the cabinet are there, the deputy cabinet members are there, the first secretary, the second secretary, the third secretary. They are right in, right in the middle of a full cabinet meeting, and suddenly there's a gatecrasher. But it's a strange gatecrasher because he's a member of parliament. He's a member of the opposition. And his, and his name is Julius. <laughs> Julius, we love you, please. If you're a member of the EFF, you are so welcome in this church. I really want to say that. You're so welcome. We just want you to love Jesus more. That's all. Have a look at verse... Julius, we love you, please. Verse 7. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? So it's quite obvious here that Satan has a certain amount of freedom and power. He wanders all over the earth to search men and women to see who is a genuine believer or not. Most likely he loves his job, but he's committed to the downfall of godly people. Now let's just take a step back here to understand what's happening here and what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches quite clearly that God is a personal, sovereign, creator God. He has all power, all majesty, all our honor. He sovereignly rules, sovereignly rules over his world. Under his sovereignty and subservient to his sovereignty are spiritual beings, spiritual forces, some good, some bad. The evil spiritual forces are real, they are personal, they have genuine power, but their power is limited. Satan can only do what God allows him to do. Now some of you may say to me, Martin, my goodness me, it's 2020, uh, for goodness sake, you don't actually believe in a real devil with, with horns, red horns and a pitchfork. Well, I don't know about the horns or the pitchfork, but I do believe in a very real devil. Let me ask you this question, if you doubt the existence of the supernatural, if you doubt the existence of a real devil and a real Satan. Let me ask you this question, if you're so clever. Without a real devil and a real personal evil, how on earth do you explain a gang of men gang-raping a woman? Forgive me for being so graphic, but how do you explain that? How do you explain a man raping a baby? 
How do you explain one man killing six million Jews? He takes the equivalent of car fumes, forces it down people's noses and throats until they choke and they die and there's no escape. And then a couple of days or weeks later, he and his boys come with pliers. They come with pliers and screwdrivers. And from the rotting flesh, they take off the rings They take off the rings or diamonds or jewelry from the dead ears and they then with the screwdrivers pierce out the gold fillings in the dead teeth. And then when they go home, they play with their daughters in the lounge, they have supper with red wine and listen to Beethoven. Your materialistic, atheistic, anti-supernatural worldview has no vocabulary, has no categories, has no worldview to explain the horrors of this world. You are living in this new age, one-size-fits-all, God-is-love bubble. You haven't even got to step one in the real world. There's a real Satan, there's a real devil who is absolutely determined to get you and me. And if you don't believe that, you are in deeper trouble than what you think. Let me just say here that the Bible does not teach dualism. Let me explain what dualism is because it's important that we understand what the Bible does not teach. Dualism says there are two equal opposite forces battling out to win like the Empire and the Federation in Star Wars. And according to dualism, there's a God and a Satan, or whatever you may want to call it. They are both equal. They are both independent. They are both possible winners. We don't actually know who's going to win in the end, and we are caught in the crossfire. We are collateral damage. The Bible does not teach dualism. On the contrary, The Bible teaches that God is God. God is totally and completely sovereign. God is completely and totally in control. His purposes for his world will be accomplished. He is king. He has no rivals. He is unique. And yet he governs his world through the agency of supernatural powers. And some of those supernatural powers are evil. But they are subject to him. So the sons of God, verse 6, are powers greater than human powers, but they are less than God's power. There's There's no question of the conclusion and the end. We're looking at the book of Revelation Sunday evenings, and the message of the book of Revelation is, I'll give it to you right now, but still come tonight, in the end we win. That's not dualism. Let me say it again, because at first it can be deeply unsettling, but if you reflect on it, it is deeply comforting. There is a real devil, there is a real Satan, there are real evil spirits who have real power, but it is limited power. And God governs his world. He orders the affairs of his world through angels, through good forces, and through evil forces and evil spirits. And he is sovereign over them all. 
The Satan, the evil spirits, the evil agencies are supernatural, they are superhuman, but they are always subdivine. Always. Satan, to quote Martin Luther, is God's Satan. Verse 8. Things will speed up. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? God says to Satan, While you're surfing the internet, while you're looking at Facebook, just check out Job. Just check him out. There's none like him, blameless, upright, who fears God, turns away from evil. Satan answers verse 9, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions. You've increased his land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. Well, of course, says Satan, Job will worship you. I mean, you've given him prosperity and money and property and family and blessings. No wonder he worships you. He worships you because of what he gets out of you. Take away the hedge and he'll curse you. Then you'll see if he really loves you. Now listen carefully to Satan's argument. Because I think there are many people who have been trapped by that thinking and now curse God. You see, Satan says, I know he's pious and he's religious. I've seen him at church at home. He actually uh, watches uh, Royden's sermons twice. Uh, he, uh, and uh, he's, he's at prayer meeting on a Wednesday night. Of course he's pious. I know he's pious. You can't deny that. But why? Well, he's discovered that the prosperity gospel works. That's what he's discovered. If he honors you, if he fears you, if he loves you, well, you'll make him richer. His wife will have children, the children will be blessed, they'll be healthy, successful, his bank balance will grow and grow. Who wouldn't love you? <laughs> I mean, uh, it's a no-brainer. Uh, he's not loving you because you're God, he's loving you because of what he gets from you. Verse 11, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Take away the hedge and he'll abandon you, says Satan. And God says, verse 12, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now we're going to come back to that verse again next week because it plays out exactly the same verse in chapter 2. And we need to look at it in some detail because it's a very disturbing verse when you first read it. Tragically, let me just say that many people do curse God because they've been had. They've been burnt by the prosperity gospel. It's toxic. There are many of you in this church, you've told me. You used to belong to a prosperity church. And they said if you had enough faith, if you had enough prayers, if you gave enough money, then you would be blessed. And you weren't blessed. You were still struggling with your illness. You were still struggling to find a job. And you attempted to curse God. And some people you know have abandoned God. We had a lovely couple in this church a number of years ago. Very involved, very active. I knew them well. 
They both fell on hard times. They both lost their jobs. And then one Sunday morning after church, uh, they came to me very excited, and they said, you know, in the same week, both of us got new jobs. And they said, but now, they said, now we know that God is real. Now, I can't remember what I said. I probably said something like, well, thank God. And we do thank God. But I thought about what they said afterwards, and it worried me. Does it mean that if you don't have a job, if you're unemployed, God is not real? Does it mean that if God doesn't answer your prayer, he's not real? Does it mean that if you can't get over your illness, God is not real? You see, that's the falsehood of this so-called gospel. About six months or so before COVID, they, they stopped coming to church. I don't know where they are. I hope they've found another church. And I really do hope that they're not cursing God because things are not going so well. Because that's a false gospel. Lastly, let's have a look. We've looked at Job and his family. We've looked at God and Satan. Job and his family, the scene was on earth. God and Satan is in heaven. We're now with Job and his wheelchair, or Job and his suffering, in verse 13 to 19. It is, scene three is a terrifying scene. Let's make no mistake about that. We move back from heaven to earth. Verse 13, again there was a day, a terrible day. Now remember, Job knew nothing about Act 2. Job has no understanding, he has no consciousness of Act 2, of what was happening in heaven. He doesn't know that there was this discussion, this debate between God and Satan. He has no idea. In fact, the last Job knew he was in chapter 1, verse 5. Job reappears, chapter 1, verse 13. And all he knows, he knows nothing about what happened in heaven, but he does know that the bottom has fallen out of his world. And four messengers arrive, almost like the four horsemen from the apocalypse in Revelation. Verse 13. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. There came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Well, what do we have here? We have a terrorist attack by the Sabaeans. Destroyed the oxen, the donkeys, the servants. Probably about a billion rand, the oxen. And much-loved servants. It's almost like a, like a car bomb or a suicide bomber. It's destructive, it's violent, it's, it's, it's unimaginable. Verse 16, while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burnt up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So there's lightning, there's a storm, there's fire from heaven, 7,000 sheep, all the shepherds burnt up, nuked. Nuked. The insurers call it an act of God. Well, it was. They say it would be the trauma of someone experiencing an earthquake or a tsunami. But the trauma isn't over yet. There's another messenger and another terrorist attack, verse 17. 
While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. 3,000 camels between two and three billion rand, their shepherds all annihilated. Job is bankrupt. Imagine Jeff Bezos with his 140 billion US dollars bankrupt. The greatest man of the region liquidated from riches to rags. And the creditors are knocking on the door. And then the worst, we haven't yet even come to the worst. The worst, verse 18, it doesn't get worse than this. I'm a pastor. I've been in some of your homes when this happens. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell among the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. You've seen those movie scenes at the end of a big battle with, with swords and bows and arrows and horses, and the battle is over. And the clouds are gray. And the fields are littered with dead horses and dead men and pools of water and pools of blood. You've seen it. And you know there is no music. There is no music. Just this whistling, haunted wind. And a few groans from dying men. And some cries from birds or vultures. And dread fills the horizon. That is verse 18 and 19. What has happened to Job is very, very rare, but it does happen. And there are a few of you in this church family who have tasted most or some of it. That's why we have trauma counselors. That's why we have something called post-traumatic stress. Let me close, verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Charge God with wrong. So Satan was wronged. Satan was dead wrong. Despite everything, Job does not curse God. Naked I came, naked I'll go. The Lord gave, the Lord gives, takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He didn't worship God because of what God could give him or what he could get out of God. He worshiped God because God was God. That is true faith. That is true worship. Now, I can't let you go until I've told you the key to understand the book of Job. Because if I don't, you may go home and slash your wrists, and I don't want you to do that. There's no question that what you have here is post-traumatic stress on steroids. There's no question that this is scary beyond imagination. This is a horror story. It's not the deep internet. This is the dark, dark internet. And what makes it 
more agonizing is that in some way God is behind it. It is excruciatingly agonizing. But let me give you the key so you get it right at the start. You cannot understand Job without understanding Christ and the cross. Because Job is not every man. Job is not every believer. No, Job is an Old Testament shadow of the New Testament cross. Job is a shadow, not of a blameless man, but a sinless man. Job is a shadow, not of the greatest man living in the region. He's a shadow of the greatest man who lived in all of history. He's a shadow of the perfect obedience of Christ. He's a shadow of the sufferings and agonies of Christ. He's a shadow of the naked, shameful body of a man on a cross, unrecognizable, beyond all human comfort, God-forsaken. He's a shadow of that. The obedience and sufferings of Job is a foretaste, a shadow, a glimpse of the sufferings of Christ. It's a rough draft. It's a sketch of the ultimate blameless man. So Job, amongst many other things, primarily, primarily, gives us a small taste of how much God loves you. Because he sent his son to suffer a million times more. And believe me, it was a million times more than Job. To rescue people like you and me from our sin to rescue us from God's wrath, to rescue us from God's judgment. What a God. What a Savior. That he would go through all of this to save someone like you and me. Well, let's pray. Let's spend a few moments of quiet as we reflect on God's word. Father, again, we thank you so much for the Bible, this unbelievable book that is so unbelievably honest and tells us what this world is really like, that helps us to live in this broken, distorted, sinful world, that helps us to make sense of the injustice of it all and preeminently points us to the one who brings ultimate justice, but also grace. Thank you, Lord, for this picture of Jesus, of what he went through 
to save someone like me. Lord, we almost can't take that in. So, Lord, will you write these truths upon our hearts and our minds, give us boundaries, principles, a worldview that makes sense of the world in which we live and knows that in the end, God wins. And God will never leave us or forsake us. So, Father, go with us into this week. Help us to live for you, to serve you. Whether things are going well or not, help us to worship you because you are God. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen.